Welcome to the Latinos in Real Estate Investing Podcast, the top information hub for real estate investors and entrepreneurs within the Latino community. Join us on our journey as the host, Martin Perdomo, the elite strategist, talks about how ordinary people can become extraordinary with the power of real estate investing. Here, he and his guests share their expert knowledge on how to create wealth through real estate investing, the mindset required to become a millionaire, and what it takes to master the craft. Hey guys, this is Martin Perdomo, the Elite Strategist, and you're listening to Latinos and Real Estate Investing Podcast, and you're watching us on YouTube. And first and foremost, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for watching us. Thank you for listening to us. And I have a special guest today. I met I met Stacy. Her name is Stacy Bowers, and I met Stacy at a at a conference, at a real estate investors conference. And we met. We hit it off. We had a bunch of really good conversations. And and uh, she's a law professor at the University of Denver Durham College. I don't know if I said that right. Maybe my accent didn't didn't pronounce it right, Stacy. But I, I did the best I can there. She teaches corporate commercial uh, corporate commercial law. Did I get that right, Stacy? Yeah, you did. And you used to do something with the SEC, and I can't remember exactly what it was that you used to do with the SEC. You used to, used to work with them, right? I did. I worked, yep, I worked in the Division of Corporation Finance out of law school. Perfect. So, so we're going to unpack a lot of stuff, guys. We're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about entities. We're going to talk about asset protection. We're going to talk about raising capital. We're going to talk about a lot of different things today. And uh, Stacy, welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm grateful that you're here. Um, you're an academic, very smart, very intelligent person. <laughs> and I'm excited. I'm, I'm always excited to have um, intelligent conversations with intelligent folks. So thank you for being here. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself before we get started? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so a little bit about myself, my full-time job, I'm a professor at the Sturm College of Law. So you got it right um, at the University of Denver. And then I also practice law as what's called of counsel, which just means I'm not a full-time lawyer, just a part-time lawyer at a firm called Three Pillars Law. Um, And they are located just a little bit south of Denver, Colorado. Um, Let me see. I graduated in 92 from law school. So I'm creeping up on that 30-year anniversary from law school. And all of my career, I practiced uh, full-time for 15 years, but honestly, even post that full-time, I've been practicing off and on for those other 15 years. And I've always had a focus on um, securities law. I started the Securities and Exchange Commission out of law school, but focus on securities law, helping companies raise capital through private offerings, and just being a general corporate lawyer. So I'm one of those people. I've never litigated a day in my life. I've never had to step foot inside a courtroom, and thank heavens for that. <laughs> That's awesome, and you teach, so which is which is great. Um, so I want to I, I want to start right there, right, in raising capital. Um, so first of all, you know, a lot of my listeners. Um, a lot of them are beginners. Some of them are, like I mentioned earlier to you, some of them are middle of the way and some of them are seasoned, very, very high level investors. But I want to just, we're going to just make believe that everyone that's listening is not very familiar with raising capital and the way that we do it here at our company when we're syndicating a deal. So let's start there. Um, How do you rate, how do you help investors, right? That are, for instance, I'm an investor and I found this, I found an apartment building, maybe I found a 10 unit apartment building or a 20 unit apartment building. And now I want to go and raise money from 
five or six friends or maybe not friends, maybe a friend of a friend or a cousin of a friend that I don't necessarily know. Can you tell me? And they're like, wow, I really like what you're doing. You, you're an investor and I really like what you're doing. Can I can I put some money and and, and and put my money to work with you? Can you tell us how someone would then go about taking that money legally, not getting in trouble with the SEC, with the Security Exchange Commission, right? Because you used to work for them, um, which is what's beautiful about this conversation. You know, men, you know how to play this game and you know how to advise us really well. So how do we, how does one person go about that? Where do you start, uh, Stacy? How do you, where do you go? Where do you begin? Like, how does, okay, so now I have five people, yeah. two I know, three or four I don't know, and they're giving me money because they heard about me and they just, how, how, how do you do that? So I think the first thing I would say is anybody who sort of is heading down that path and wants to invest in real estate, whether you know, they're buying a duplex or they're buying a 10 unit building or something along those lines. I'd really tell everyone before you start talking to anyone about your project and raising capital and what you want to do, like consult a lawyer. And I say that because as Martin said, you want to make sure you talk to somebody who has the legal knowledge that can say, okay, these are the things that you can and can't do at this point in time so that you don't find yourself running afoul of the securities laws. So in particular, when I, you know, because there are two main sort of ways that people raise capital and, you know, to, to put a number on them, we call them a 506B and a 506C offering. So these are two ways for real estate syndicators to raise capital, whether it's from a handful of friends and family, sort of that first capital raise, they're just getting into it. Or as you mentioned, they're more seasoned, they're more sophisticated, and they're raising from, you know, 100 accredited investors. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You want to have that conversation with a lawyer so that as you're heading down this path of raising capital, okay, we can advise you. These are the things you can be saying at this point in time. These are the things you can be doing. This is what you can't do depending on how you want to raise the capital. And sometimes that idea of how you want to raise the capital ties back to who do you want to raise the capital from? So if you want to raise the capital from friends and family, and many times those are people that aren't accredited, meaning they don't have a requisite level of annual income or net worth to throw them into this category we call accredited investors. So when you're raising money from people who aren't accredited investors, there are a lot more limitations um, how, when you can talk to them, how much you, you know, you have to have a relationship with them. And you and I talked about that at the conference. So there are a lot more um, hoops to be cognizant of in that situation than if you are just raising capital from, from accredited investors. So what is an accredited investor? What is an accredited investor? What is a non-accredited investor for those that don't know? Sure. So um, I like to say the dividing line really is about money to, to cut to the chase. So for an individual person, in order for um, any of us on this call to be considered to be an accredited investor, the two way, main ways that it can happen is if we have $1 million of net worth. So when we think about net worth, you add up all the assets. So everything you own, you know, your, your house, your homes, your cars, everything you have in your brokerage accounts, your four, you know, if you've got 401ks, 
and you subtract out all the debt that you owe. So how much do I owe on my credit cards? How much do I owe on different things that I own? The only caveat I want to say there is you can't count your primary residence as an asset. So that home or condo or townhome that you live in, you can't count that as an asset, but you also don't have to count the mortgage on it as a liability. So when you take that out of the mix, you take all of your assets minus your liabilities, what you owe, what you own minus what you owe, and that's your net worth. So as long as that's a million or greater, that makes you an accredited investor. And then the other way to be accredited is if you have an annual salary of $200,000 and you've, you've had that salary for the past two years and you expect to have that same level of salary in the current year, that will make you an accredited investor. And then if you're trying to be accredited in conjunction with your spouse or spousal equivalent, that's the word the SEC likes to use to talk about people like myself. I am not married to my partner. We share a house together, but we're not married. So he's my spousal equivalent, according to the SEC. So if we're looking at those two parties together, then those dollar amounts go to 300000 So with the two of us, if we made 300000 combined the past two years, and we're going to make 300000 combined in the current year, that will also make me an accredited investor. And then there are other sort of, there are a lot of other ways to be an accredited investor. And probably the other one that might be most relevant here in the real estate world is that anybody who's um, a, a general partner or a member or an executive officer of the company that's raising the capital, that makes them an accredited investor. And it doesn't matter what their net worth is doesn't matter what their income is, but because they're part of the company, so to speak, they sit in sort of that executive level role at the company, whatever we call them, that means they have access to lots of information about the company. They know the ins and outs of the company. And so it puts them in a position to be able to understand should they invest in this offering or not. So by nature of that relationship, that makes that person an accredited investor as well. Thank you. I just learned something new from you. That's <laughs> cool. I didn't know that. Thank you for that. Sure. You know, I've always wondered, Stacy, why is the SEC's nose in our business, right? I used to always think so. I started my career as an insurance in insurance sales, right? Years ago. And um, you know, you have the insurance department that regulates insurance. You have the the what is it, the bar association that regulates you guys. You have the SEC that regulates, I used to think the SEC regulates stockbrokers and publicly traded companies and um, people with their Series 6 and 67 and, and all those licenses, right? And then I, you know, came in this business and I'm like, SEC, why, why I'm raising money for real estate? What does the SEC have to do with this? Can you break that down for me? Can you explain to us why, why does the SEC's, why is the SEC's nose in and um, when we're raising capital, it makes sense to me now, but maybe some people out there don't know. Sure. So, I mean, I'm going to go way far back in time into the 1920s, believe it or not. And so think about the stock market crash mm -hmm. and companies were out there. They were just raising money by word of mouth um, and they were getting investors in the door. And so many people lost a lot of money in the crash. And so in the early 30s, the SEC was created. And part of its mission um, is to protect potential investors. So its overarching goal is to protect investors and to put them in, an investor into a position 
to be able to make an informed decision before they invest money. So not not thinking about, you know, the not the investor, not the company that's buying the property, but that company, all of the investors who are giving it capital to help buy the company. The SEC's goal is to protect those people. And so I sometimes like to say, I feel like the SEC has a little bit of a parental role in the scheme of things, and I don't know if that's right or wrong, but at the end of the day, they want to protect investors and they don't want to have a situation like what happened in the stock market crash of the 1920s. And if you look through time, I mean, constantly, you know, the SEC will try and protect, something will go wrong, they'll put a new piece of legislation in place to try and continue to protect. So why are they in this business? Because at the end of the day, when a company raises capital to buy a piece of real estate and it's selling an interest in a limited liability company, that's a security. And so the the Securities and Exchange Commission, they are in charge of regulating the sales of securities. So even though that security is happening privately, meaning the company is not raising capital through a public offering, it's not going to be listed on a stock exchange, it's just raising capital from private investors to buy a piece of real estate, what brings the SECs into the mix is that that is a sale of a security. And so anytime a company sells a security, the SEC steps in and says, okay, you either have to register it with us and in essence do a public offering or you have to find an exemption from the registration requirements. And we're going to offer you a lot of options there, different ways that you can sell securities without registering them, but you're still selling a security. So guess what? The SEC, we're still going to monitor this and pay attention to it. And I'm just going to throw in a little tidbit because I think this is interesting. Over probably the past five years, more money is being raised in these private offerings, sort of these regulation D offerings, whether it's real estate syndication or REITs or whatever, than is being raised in public offerings. So right now, that and, it, and it's a significant amount more is being raised through these private offerings. So I think when you think about you know, tying that into the mix as well, the SEC is going to stay in this arena and they're going to, I think they're going to continue to pay maybe even a little bit more attention to all of these private offerings because that's where a wealth of capital is being raised to help fund startup businesses. Got it. Okay. So you've given us a crash course. Thank <laughs> you for that because I learned a ton from you. That's what I love about my podcast because I get to spend time with really smart people and I get to learn so much and I get to ask those questions that I want to learn about. My next question for you is my dear. Okay. So what exactly do do you do and how do you help someone like me, right? So I am a, I am an investor and I am going to, maybe there's someone out there just like me that, hey, I see this 20-unit apartment building. I now have these, have these people that are willing to invest their money with me. How can I take their money, not take, but how can I, how can they invest their money with me, right? How can they invest their money with me and me give them a return and do it legally and stay out of trouble, right? So the SEC doesn't come knocking on my door, doesn't start saying, hey, you did this wrong. Can you break that down for me? How would you be able to help someone like that? Sure. Um, So obviously, you know, with the knock on the door, the phone call, the email, hey, I'm thinking about buying this piece of property. Can you sit down and talk to me about, you know, just what Martin's saying? Like, what can you do for me as my lawyer? So honestly, the first thing I would want to do with somebody in that situation was just have 
a conversation with them to get the background information to understand who do they want to raise capital from? And again, going back to that, are they accredited? Are they non-accredited? How much are they trying to raise? You know, what kind of return do they want to do? So we just kind of have that initial consultation because that's going to provide me with the information to say, okay, based on what you're telling me, I think you should do this kind of offering, the 506B offering, because that allows you to bring in non-accredited investors. And that's going to come with, you know, some hoops and hurdles that you have to jump through. Or based on what you're telling me, it sounds like the 506C offering, where you can only sell to accredited investors is the way to go. Once we make that determination, what I will sit down and do is I'll work with the client and we'll put together a disclosure document. And that document's generally called the private placement memorandum. And that'll be the official document that you, that somebody would use to raise capital to then take that capital and buy the piece of property. So in that document, I, it's a little bit of a cover your behind, a CYA document for the party that's raising capital, because you want to tell those potential investors, okay, this is how much capital I'm raising. This is what I'm going to do with it. Here's what I'm going to invest it in. This is what it looks like. Here's all the risk. These are all the things that could go wrong and why you could lose your money. And then you're going and then we're going to also have a section that we craft in there that talks about okay this is the return you're going to get this is what it looks like this is when you might get your return and then here's what we might do you know 3 years from now or 5 years from now we might refinance this property and cash all of you out or we might sell the property and cash all of you out to get that return so one of our main roles is to draft that disclosure document for people who are raising capital Along along the way, we will help them. We'll form the entity that they'll need to raise the capital. We'll put in place the operating agreement that'll govern that entity that's raising the capital. And then we'll give them the ancillary documents that they would use with their investors. So the subscription agreement, which is just the agreement that basically says, okay, I'm investing in your deal. Here's how much money I'm giving you. Here's the percentage I'm getting in return. So that's just the subscription agreement. And then the, the agreement, it's called a joinder agreement, and it's really just a signature page that says, okay, when somebody's invested in my deal, they have to sign this joinder because that means they have to agree to be bound by the terms of the operating agreement. So that operating agreement that says how that LLC is going to be run and managed that's going to own the property. So we'll do all of those aspects, and that's my primary focus. That's what I help clients with. But then also within my own firm, we have a team that can help somebody who's um, negotiating with, you know, to negotiate with the buyer. So they're buying the property. So they're negotiating. We can help negotiate with the seller, the terms of the purchase of the property. We also have people on our team that can help negotiate with lenders because a lot of times, you know, in these real estate syndication deals, you're raising capital from investors to fund part of it, but you're also taking out that traditional loan from a bank or a lender to help fund part of the purchase of the property as well. So we can assist with that negotiation with the lender and getting that, that piece of the puzzle into place as well. So in essence, we're really there to help the company like jump through or do all of those steps to raise the capital legally to get, you know, to put in place the documents, to, you know, walk people through, this is what you can say, this is what you can't say, this is when you can say it or when you can't say it. So kind of all of those nuances that, 
you know, the average person just doesn't necessarily know. And I would even say, you know, sometimes for my own sake, I mean, I go back and revisit the rules because I want to be like, oh, I want to make sure I've got it exactly right when I'm talking to a client. That's awesome. And and this is, you know, I always talk about, you know, in success, you're an academic and I'm going to kind of switch it up a little bit. In academia, uh, it's taught, generally speaking, that in order to win, you have to um, do it yourself, right? You get punished in, acad- in, in school if someone else helps you. If I go and I look in, in my, my, my professor or, or someone gives me a test and I go and I look at and I ask my friend for help, let me look at your answers. Can you help me? And we debate it. I get in trouble for that. I could get failed for that. But it's so, it's so disconnected from real life because like what you said, um, for us, right, we, we bring in attorneys when we're, when we're, when we're raising capital. We want to surround ourselves with people that can help us in real life. It's a team in order to succeed. Success requires other people with expertise. Um, I was just having that conversation with someone actually with my team. I had my coach come in and do some training with my, with my team. And I actually said that to my team. I said, you know, uh, there's one thing that academia has gotten wrong and it's that they punish people for working together as a team. Right. And in real life and success, this is what success is about. Everyone has a role. We work together. We come together. And for us to be successful as a company, we would have to bring a firm like yours or you in and say, hey, help us. Ask for help. Right. Help us. We don't know this. Guide us here. Right. Give us some advice here. Um, so so that's really good. I want to talk to you. I want to switch into a little bit about entity. Right. Because a lot of my a lot of my listeners are maybe they're beginning and maybe what we just talked about, maybe a little bit further down the road for them. Um, but maybe they're beginning and they've maybe are purchasing properties in their name. Like I did. Hey, that's how I started. I, I bought my first investment. I didn't know any better. Stacy, mm-hmm. I went and I bought <laughs> my name. It was in my credit. Everything was me. Right. And um, you got to do what you got to do to get started. But as you become more sophisticated, I want you to tell people, why is it a good idea to buy real estate in an LLC? Why is that a good idea? That's one of the things that you do, right? Why is it a good idea to have a trust, right? And I know that's a little bit, maybe a little bit more advanced, but why is it a good idea to 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 set up an LLC and buy your real estate in an LLC? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that from the perspective of particularly people just getting started. Mm-hmm. So you know you're buying maybe that first condo that you're gonna short term rent, or you're buying a duplex. And many times I think, you know, as Martin said, you don't think about it and you're like, oh, I'm just going to buy it in my own name. I already have a relationship with a bank because that's where my primary residence is. But that really opens that person up to liability. So when you buy property and you own it in your own name individually or with your spouse or significant other, you own it jointly. That means if something happens on your property, so somebody slips and falls when they're walking up your front stairs or, you know, a tree limb on your property comes down and smashes into the house next door. And I say that because I walked out yesterday morning and there was a tree limb down in my front yard, (laughs) thankfully just in my yard. But that means that if somebody, somebody could sue you personally because they fell on your property or that tree limb damaged their property. So when you own it in your own name, they can sue you personally. 
Now, hopefully we all have insurance on our property. We all carry some kind of homeowner's insurance, and that's going to step in and cover, in most instances, it's going to cover the, you know, some of those costs. There's probably going to be a deductible, but there are also going to be situations where if that person fell on my sidewalk because I didn't clear off the ice and snow, my insurance company might come back and say, you know what, you were grossly negligent. This person fell because you were grossly negligent because you didn't clear it off. You didn't tell them it was icy. And guess what? Your insurance policy is not going to cover that. So that means that I'm going to have to come up with that cash out of my own pocket. So to add context to that, the reason to purchase property as a limited liability company and not necessarily your personal property, though some people do that as well, their primary residence, is to create that layer of protection so that If an entity, if a limited liability company owns the property, and I'm going to add a caveat there, it can't just own the property, but it also has to operate as a limited liability company. It has to make sure it's got its own bank account, that whoever are the owners of that limited liability company, they're not mingling their personal and company funds. Like Everything is very distinct and separate. So if it's operating truly as a limited liability company should, and it owns that property, going back to my scenario, so if an LLC owned the property and somebody slipped and fell, even if the insurance didn't step in and cover it, that person can sue the limited liability company. But they can't come after me just because I own that limited liability company. So it adds that layer of protection in that somebody can't look through that company and come after my personal assets. Now, we all know that's, you know, that's not a that's not a black and white answer. And that if I'm not running my limited liability company the way I should, that courts can do what they call pierce the veil. They can pierce that corporate veil, which just means they can look through that LLC to me personally. But as long as you're abiding by sort of those what we call corporate formalities, you're, you know, you've got the standalone bank accounts, you're doing everything sort of as you would any kind of corporate entity, then that's going to offer a layer of protection. That means I can own multiple properties and something can go wrong in a property and somebody's not going to be able to come back after my primary residence or my personal bank accounts or brokerage accounts or things of that nature. And and when you say pierce the corporate veil, can you give me an example of how or what are a few things that one can do to expose oneself to to being um, corporate veil being pierced? Sure. So there are some really um, simple ones and ones that I sometimes see happen that people, you know, many times people are like, oh, I am going to create an LLC and buy this property and that's great. But then they never open a bank account for that LLC. So the loan to buy the property, um, it doesn't go through the bank account for the LLC. It goes through the person's, the individual's personal account. So now all of the sudden, you're not operating that LLC as a standalone entity. You're, you know, you're mingling its funds with your own personal funds. And that's going to open it up to being able to pierce the veil. Another way that that can happen um, is that it's undercapitalized. So you open up the bank account, but you don't put enough money in there for that LLC to have what it needs to manage and run the property. So it should have a bank account and it might not need to be a lot of money. So maybe if that LLC just owns a condo that's being short-term rented, 
But there ought to maybe be like some reserves in there. Maybe it's $10,000. So if something goes, you know, a water pipe breaks, the company itself has money in that bank account that it can use to go out and pay for the repair. So making sure that there's sufficient capital in the account that the company has, that LLC has money to be able to manage its operations. And again, I mean, I really think the biggest way that piercing the veil happens is people don't, they mingle the funds. Or, you know, maybe the the LLC has a bank account, but the person who owns it, they're just constantly sort of tapping into that bank account and pulling money out for themselves because they need some extra cash. So those are the kind of things that sort of open that LLC up to saying, hey, yeah, you have an LLC, but you're not really treating it as a standalone entity. You're really just treating it. It's called the alter ego of ourselves. Basically, you're just treating it like it's you. And because of that, we're going to come after you personally. That LLC is not going to give you that that protection. Okay, very cool. I've learned I've learned so much. Thank <laughs> you for those tips. Um, I want to switch it up a little bit because you and I kind of talked about this a little bit while when we met at BEC at, at the conference in Colorado. And I want to switch it up a little bit. Um, what as a as a professor? How long you've been a professor now for? Oh my gosh, I always hate when people ask me that. I started teaching a long time. A long time. I started teaching as an adjunct professor when I was still practicing in 2001. So that was, I was just teaching a class um, here and there. And I think I've been teaching full time now. I want to think it's about 11 years. Okay. 11 years full time. Yeah. Got it. Okay. What are you finding is the biggest challenge in? academia today and in, 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 in universities today with the generation of new lawyers coming up, the ones that you're teaching. I met some of your students, by the way. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, you know, so it's interesting. That's an interesting question for me because I also think I try and remind myself that like I grew up in a certain generation mm-hmm. and in, when you're in academia, and I was just having this conversation yesterday with a colleague, like I'm aging, but in a way, students are always the same age, which creates this weird, you know, because there's turnover. So while I continue to get older, my students are all sort of still in that same age range. I think the big, and I'm speaking for myself, I think the biggest challenge for me is um, the expectations that students have. I think, you know, if I were to think back, like even, you know, eight years ago, or even going further back in time when I was teaching as, you know, just an adjunct professor, I felt like students were maybe more willing to figure things out on their own. And now I think they have a higher expectation. And I guess, you know, I think some people refer to it as it's kind of that consumer culture And I think whereas I didn't view myself necessarily as a consumer when I went to college, when I went to law school, like, you know, I chose to make that. I think now students view universities like that they're a consumer. And because they're a consumer, that university should be providing like more to them. Um, Because if not, guess what? We're going to go somewhere else. So I think like I think that's a little bit of the mind change. Um, And then some of it too, I just, you know, again, I think it's, I'm getting older and I have my perspective and how Mm -hmm. it was when I went to law school, but just recognizing, you know, that students learn differently. They've had a different experience in high school, in college. And so 
they come in from a different perspective. But I do feel like for me, sometimes it's a little bit of like, um, they're maybe a little bit more less willing to go it on their own for a little bit longer before they sort of start seeking help. And I don't know that that's a bad thing because I mean, back to your point, like, shouldn't it be a team effort? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I should, yeah. be, I should be part of that team. Um, but I think that also as a teacher, I'm like, well, I kind of want you to try and flounder a little bit on your own before you come to me and we make it a team effort, like try and figure it out on your own. So I think it's sort of, where's that balance of, of things in academia? A happy medium for it. Um, my next, my next thought process along those lines is, um, I went to a conference, I don't know, five, six years ago, and it's, uh, a business conference. And in this conference, we talked about what business should we be in, right? What business are you in and what business should you be in? Right. That's a question for entrepreneurs, right? What business am I in? That's a question I'm constantly asking myself. Because I'm constantly, I'm constantly looking at the market, right? So, if I'm in this business, I'm constantly as a real estate investor. I'm constantly evaluating the data. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly looking at the data and seeing what's happening in the market, where could things be going, and what direction should I be driving my ship. So, one question that was asked of us there was, "What business are we in? What business should you be in?" Mm-hmm. Right. Because a lot of businesses are becoming extinct and a lot of professions are becoming extinct. One of my one of my business partners is a surgeon. She's a she's a foot surgeon. She's a podiatrist. And, you know, you got robots doing surgeries now. Right. So we when we consider AI, we consider artificial intelligence replacing a lot of jobs, a lot of professions. Um, where do you see the future of law from your perspective? Right. When there's companies now that are are big corporations that are downsizing their legal department because you got computers and systems that they have all their law libraries and stuff in there. Where do you see the future of law and attorney and attorneys in the future? What is your perspective there? So I think it's interesting. I mean, there's definitely some AI going on out there in the legal world and the idea of, you know, AI can, you know, draft a basic contract or help somebody do a basic contract. And I think, you know, there's some element of truth to that. But I think part of what you get with a good lawyer, so I'm going to put the caveat on there, a good lawyer, um, that, that, (laughs) that knowledge and expertise. Because every, I think, Every situation is unique. So when I think about, you know, whether it's a real estate syndication or just raising capital in general, like every situation is unique. And I don't think that artificial intelligence can step in and do what we can do as human beings, that you can't you can't have that conversation where I can say to you, oh, based on what you're telling me, I really think this is the way to go because this other way is not going to work for you for these reasons. So I think when we shift, you know, the shift into this idea of AI, um, that aspect of having that knowledge and helping guide people to one, you know, the best course of action for them, that goes away. And so now I think in the legal field, you're putting people in a position where, okay, I'm now I'm just sort of making these decisions on my own. I'm not getting guidance from somebody who's an expertise, but, you know, hey, my friend down the street said, yeah, I use this artificial intelligence program to draft my PPM. And you might go do that. 
but if you don't know which is the right way to go, which are, you know, which is the right exemption that I'm relying on. And then sort of the back end of that too, you know, I have to do all of these filings with the SEC and the various states as I raise capital. I think that gets lost in the shuffle with AI. I mean, I do think, I mean, I think there's probably a place for some basic AI. Um, and I think as sometimes I wonder if it's not more that it could be beneficial to the law firms to kind of have that AI to help them, you know, have a better place to start from, which then could maybe trickle to trickle through to a situation where maybe it's a little bit less expensive for clients to seek counsel from law firms. But I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously biased because I'm a lawyer, but I do think there's the personal aspect. So if you, part of why you hire a lawyer and part of who you pick to be your lawyer is because you like them, you want to work with them. Yeah. You think they're smart, but you also like, oh, this this is somebody that's going to help me or it's going to answer my question, you know, at eight o'clock at night because I'm really stressed because I'm trying to close a deal and a computer can't do that. Correct. Uh, so that's a really good answer. Really good answer. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm a big person. I'm a big this, right? Human beings, human touch. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that, about that. So last question, I promise, right? So question about, you said a good lawyer, not so good lawyer. And I've had a lot of experiences with a lot of different lawyers. And there's, unfortunately, um, I've had more poor experience and bad experiences and good experience. And when I say bad experiences, I mean, um, you know, attorneys biggest challenge that, that I have found with attorneys is calling back is dude, call me back. Like I'm paying you. I have your retainer. Call me back. Right. Call me back. If I'm calling, I'm not calling an attorney to social. I'm not calling my attorney to socialize unless we're friends. I'm calling you because I got an issue. I got I got something I got to deal with, right? Respond to my calls. Um, and it's kind of common with a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my friends, a lot of it. There's like, dude, that's a challenge. Even my CPA. I'm like, I talked to my CPA the other day. I was like, hey, man, I need an attorney. He was like, I won't even recommend one because they just don't call back. They say, oh, we want to have, they just suck. I, just, I recommend people and they just don't return people's calls and just issues. Um, that's one thing. But you as an attorney, what advice can you give us? Um, non-attorney people, not people in, in your world, how to find a good attorney, right? How do we how do we identify a good firm from a crappy one, from a shitty one? Because there's a lot of shitty ones. There's a lot of people that just want to take your money and mm-hmm. that's it. Um and just kind of pacify you. How do we how does one pick that can you give us some help on how to to do that? Sure. I mean I think like anything, I mean, I hate to say it because it probably feels time consuming, but you got to interview the lawyers. You got to interview the firm. And I think you have to do a little background and due diligence. So, you know, check out their website. Do they have testimonials from prior clients? Now, of course, like anybody in business is going to put the good stuff up. I mean, that's the nature of it. But I still think that you can get a sense from those testimonials, even if they're skewed. You know, are they current or is the latest good testimonial from like three years ago? That would give me pause if I was thinking about hiring a a lawyer for myself. And then I think you have to be willing to say, you know, I just want to get on the phone and chat with you a little bit. I want to have a conversation with you. I, you know, I was thinking about that. So I had a sort of a preliminary conversation with a potential client not long ago. And my perspective is they might never hire us. 
but I had a conversation with this person. They had some very specific questions. They were trying to understand some very specific things about securities laws. And I'm going to answer those questions and because I want that person to be successful. And if they don't come back to our firm, that's okay with me. So I think also like those are little maybe signs that you can sense. Like is your, you know, they're not going to give you everything on a, you know, a plate because they do want you to hire them as, as their, you know, as the lawyer, but they should be able to answer some of those questions from you and, and, you know, show you that, Hey, I'm willing to give you some information, even though you haven't retained us yet. As far as responsiveness, I mean, I think this is a problem like across almost every industry right now. And I think lawyers, accountants, doctors, we're, I mean, we're all guilty of it. I don't think there's any acceptable excuse for it other than I would say, you know, for myself, sometimes I'm just so busy and it maybe takes me 24 hours to pick up the phone and return a call. But if a client, you know, emails me or texts me and says, hey, I need to talk to you right now, it's urgent, then I'm going to respond to that. But if it's just, hey, I need to chat with you, do you have some time? I might be like, oh, can we do it tomorrow? But yeah, I mean, I think it's a downfall. I think it's a downfall of lawyers generally um, of not being the greatest communicators. I don't. I would say they don't really teach us that in law school how to be good communicators. And there you I, go. Some for you. Some for you to teach your students. I know. And I, you know, I wonder about that in general. If like that's, and I don't know that's particular to law school, but then maybe it's something that's lacking in our back to higher ed system is that we're not. You know, we're not teaching it. And you were talking about, you know, what's the difference between me and the students or what do I see in students now? Like, I cannot tell you, like, I will tell my students, I'm like, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call the person. Not everything has to happen on email or via text. I'm like, it's okay to pick up the phone and and make that personal connection. And I think that's one place where I see a big difference in students these days, like this hesitation to actually call someone on the phone. Um, Other tip, but, and I think too, you know, a good firm, they should be willing to give you references that you could call and talk to people. They should be willing to give you one or two clients and say, you know what, here's a contact of this client and this client, you should feel free to call them and ask them what they thought of our service. Um, So I, I think those are some tips. And then I think it's a little bit of trust your gut. Um, you know, especially like if you've had some bad experiences with lawyers, like think about, you know, when you hark back to, did I kind of know that, but I still went with them anyway, but thinking about those things and trusting your gut as you're interviewing your lawyer, but you should interview them just like anyone else. Just think about it, right? When, when most people are calling attorneys is because, and no one talking to an attorney, right? Like, unless you're a business owner and you have an attorney on retainer. But most people are calling attorneys because they have a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So so when we start talking about interviewing, you start talking about interviewing, um, it, 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 it's like, yeah, that's great. But most people, not all, most people are calling attorneys when like, holy crap, I got this letter. Or, oh, I got to deal with this or I got to deal with that. And it's more so, who do you know? Who do you know? Who can I go to? And then you just kind of just want to go with it. Great information, Stacy. Thank you so, so much. If um, so, we're hiring you for our next capital raise. I just told you we, we were looking at our at our at our 38 unit. Not sure we're going to. Fantastic. I would love it. <laughs> um, we're, we're definitely going to be bringing your firm on to do the the, the PPM for us and, and all of those documents for us because we're going to be raising capital. But if someone out there is looking to open up an entity, maybe just, you know, provide value, like maybe they can call you and ask some questions. Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. And you can provide value. 
But if someone is looking to create a PPM or looking to raise capital and wants to do it right, they're that person listening right now saying, hey, I have this 20 unit. I have this 10 people that want to give me 100,000 a piece. And I want to make sure that I don't get in trouble, right? How do they reach you? How do they communicate with you? How do they how do they get a hold of you? Um, so you can help them with and through that with that process. Sure. That's um, so I am at three pillars law. And is it going to be really bad that I don't know my firm <laughs> off the top of my head? Um, but I am at uh, three, the number, the numeral three pillars law.com. So we've got a great re- website. I like to say we're really transparent. We do our work on a flat fee basis. So um, anybody who's thinking about using our firm, our fees are out there, sort of what it costs to do the different types of. I really like that, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, we try and be we try and be really transparent up front. So, um, yeah, threepillarslaw.com is the website or I'm just Stacy at threepillarslaw.com if you want to email me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would love to, you know, always happy to get on the phone and just have that initial conversation and have that inner, you know, exchange. So somebody could think, oh, do I want to work with Stacy or this law firm? And I do think in the real estate syndication world, sometimes you can have that exchange that somebody's maybe not coming to you because it's a problem that they're sort of being a little bit proactive. Yeah. And our world is a little bit different, right? We're being more, uh, a little bit more proactive. And- yeah. We need people like like real estate is a team sport. Yes, right? absolutely. Or <laughs> I looked at my team. It was just two days ago. I was telling you I was having this meeting. My, my business coach came in and, and was uh, doing some training with my team. And I looked at my team and I said exactly that to them. I said, when we were talking about the academia stuff and, and team, I said, imagine me doing everything that all of you guys are doing. Yeah, like yeah. I just can't do it, right? It's just there's no way I can do all the parts, collecting rent, doing the calls, doing this, maintenance calls, do it. There's no way, no absolute, there's absolutely no way, right? So everyone needs to, um, real estate is a team sport and you, an attorney is an important part of your team and yeah. make sure you call Stacy. She is awesome and <laughs> doing a great job. And she gave us a lot of great information. And I know I left smarter because of this uh, interview in this conversation we had here today. So thank you for that, Stacy. And we're going to put, you gave us your email, right? We're going to make sure we put your email and your information. We're going to drop it in the notes. Okay, great. So, um, people can just link, link to the notes. And guys, thank you for listening. Really appreciate you. Stacy. thank you so, so much. Thank you again for being here. It was thank my you. pleasure, my honor to have you here. Thank you for sharing all of your wisdom and your knowledge with us. Well, thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thank you for listening to the Latinos in Real Estate Investing podcast, the top information hub for real estate investors and entrepreneurs within the Latino community. If you like to invest passively in real estate with our group, please email martin at premierridgecapital.com.